Welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. Meditation doesn't have to be sitting still and having an empty mind. The journey is such a beautiful thing because we are all on a journey. You want to make sure you have some kind of distribution plan, at least have an idea of it, because you can make this really amazing film and it only gets seen by your family and friends. Old Hollywood is still intact. Every horse runs hard, but when they win, and they know it. They've got this little sass about them. It was pretty rough. I had to go into the water and with my med pack, swim to the beach, treat these guys, put them on my back, swim out to the helo. And I'm like, oh my God, I've never seen those before. And I said, what are those? And before I could even finish the sentence, she said, oh my God, you didn't touch them, did you? Even if monarchs go away and we never see one again, because there never will be monarchs again if they die out, it is just a little indicator of larger threats yeah. My dad said, so what were you guys doing in the desert? I said, we were taking nude photos. Hey everyone, welcome back. I hope you had a great week since the last time that we got together. I am so excited to bring you this week's episode with my good friend Jenna Irvin. She is a museum interpreter for the Los Angeles Natural Museum as well as a botany instructor at the Los Angeles Arboretum. She's a talented camp leader, museum instructor, classroom educator, and education specialist whose previous work experience includes Rediscover, Kids Space Museum, and Yosemite National Park, one of my favorite places in the world. She specializes in project-based learning and connecting audiences and students to their environment through relatable science and stories. If you are a plant lover, a history lover, or someone who is interested in nature and how it connects with you, this is the episode for you. Jenna's understanding of botany goes beyond knowing plants' Latin names. In this episode, she's going to tell you about fire followers that tell the story of war or the ravages of torrential flames plants that changed history and made travel possible, and so much more. So please grab a cuppa and join Jenna and me in this episode of In the Company of Friends. Enjoy. Oh my God, I'm so happy that we get together and get to talk about fun stuff. Yay! Yeah. So were you over at the Arboretum today as well? Uh, no, just tar pits. So I was working at tar pits today, and then I am going to be at the Arboretum on uh, Valentine's Day, and then the weekend after Valentine's Day, because that's when the body botany talk is. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm only over there like once a month. Oh, you are? Okay. I thought you were at the Arboretum more often than that. So the Arboretum and the tar pits, are you also at the Natural History Museum? Yeah. So I don't know if you're familiar with like the setup with like the county museums, but the Naturalist Museum and the LA Tar Pits, the, you know, Rancho La Brea Tar Pits, they're sister museums along with like the Hart Museum, which is somewhere up north. And so they actually share employees. So I work both at NHM and the Tar Pit and I split my time in between the two. And then I'll do uh, the occasional, once a month, basically, I have the walk series up at the Arboretum. So what are you doing at the Natural History Museum and at the Tar Pits? Uh, So the Tar Pits and the Natural History Museum, I'm doing the same thing. I am a museum Uh, Well, no, it's not Museum Education Specialist now because we've just changed titles. So now I'm a program manager of interpretation um, at Mm. either one of those. (laughs) So what that means is that I kind of train and facilitate interpretation. And when we say interpretation, we don't mean like language interpretation. What we mean is that we are teaching people how to communicate about science at either one of those uh, locations. So I train folks to communicate about science at museums. That's my kind of long and tall of my job. Okay. Well, it's so funny because I just finished editing tomorrow's episode that's going to go up and I was talking about my cats. You know, I have these two cats. They came from the same litter. And when I got them as kittens, Cytheria was a black on black tabby 
she had these black stripes and these lighter black stripes and it was just the craziest most amazing looking cat I'd ever seen. And then Echo is a silver tabby. They came from the same litter. And as they've grown older, they look completely different from each other because now Sithy is solid black and no longer has those stripes. And she's also about 12 pounds heavier than her sister. Oh, and baby. so I know, and they're getting the same exact diet same exact environment. Echo bounces off the walls, whereas Cytheria just kind of likes to sit and watch. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She's just like, I'm just going to sit here and watch you go crazy. And so I think that's part of the difference. But I was just talking about how it's really interesting to me and super obvious to me that metabolism and genetics can can make such a huge difference within families. Just looking at these two, they're different colors, their different body compositions. And then I was like, I don't know if I'm just spewing a bunch of BS here because I'm not a scientist, but that would be really interesting to learn how to interpret that right. That's that's just my observation as a as a cat parent. <laughs> like how to communicate about that if you were like looking at a group of cats and being like, hey, like this is how genetics work. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, I think that would be really helpful for me to be in one of your interpreting science classes, so that I can interpret this stuff a little bit better. But scientifically, it would really help to be able to put that kind of critical thinking into what you're explaining. And I think that, you know, some of that is often a miss. Yeah, I think it's funny, because I don't think a lot of people really put much thought into what museum interpreters do. And it is a entire field. And when I say museum interpreters, interpreters work in a lot of different fields. They work in uh, national parks. If you've like been to a national park and been to a ranger talk, um, that ranger is a trained interpreter. If you've been to a museum and talked to a docent, most likely that docent's been through some interpretation training. Um, and interpretation is a little bit different than like teaching. Like I often tell people like, oh yeah, I'm a teacher or I work in education, which I do, but it's very different than say what a teacher does in a classroom. So what I do at the Arboretum when I lead these night hikes and I tell people about plants and their intersection with society and history, and I say it in a way that is very, very, at least I hope, is very interesting. (laughs) And I try to build connect between botany and these folks' everyday lives. What I'm doing is I'm employing my interpretation training to communicate about botany and horticulture and like why it is important. We call it the big idea. So there's like a whole field of interpretation. There's schools, there's the Epley uh, Institute, which specializes in training interpreters. And almost every big public institution that does education is going to have interpreters that work for it. So yeah, I think it's one of those jobs. It's like very behind the scenes. And you kind of assume when you go to a museum and you talk to somebody who tells you about like the dinosaurs or the T-Rex or something that they probably are very interested in the T-Rex and maybe like it's a docent or somebody who volunteers. Um, So you kind of assume that they do a lot of their own reading and then, you know, they just kind of happen to be like fairly good at, you know, entertaining and talking to you and like getting that uh, message across. But actually uh, that person is most likely trained to make those connections. So when it comes to communicating science at a museum or at the Arboretum or any of those locations, um, what we're trying to do through the art, the art of interpretation, is find these universal concepts that kind of apply to everybody. We call these the intangibles. And so it can be things like home or mystery or, you know, just these like sort of things that everyone kind of has a sense of what that is. And then we use that angle to tie in whatever we're talking to, to your life and make it relevant to you. But when when you train with interpretation, often the exercise that you do as you start is they have you bring something that is significant to you to class. Mm -hmm. So any object at all. And they ask you to describe it. So, you know, like, I'll see if I can find something here. Um, I am going to grab an object from my house. I have here a notebook. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So 
I have this notebook here and it is, um, it's pink and blue. It's um, hardcover full of blank pages. So it's like kind of standardized eight, eight and a half by 11 pages, you know, um, blank sketching pages inside with that kind of textured paper. And it's from like the five below. So it's not like a fancy notebook. It's a $5 notebook from the five below store. And having described that notebook, what does that say to you? Like what, what do you, what, what does it mean to you? What, what do you imagine in your head? I'm imagining just a standard sketchbook that knowing you, I'm assuming that you're going to be sketching plants or something from one of the finds at the museums. And that's what comes to mind for me. Yeah. So having heard about that notebook, you're applying some ideas about it's like tangibilities, what might be inside of it. Maybe I might be sketching something that's relevant to my work um, because you know a little bit about my work, but having just known what it looks like, there's not much emotional connection you can tie to this notebook. Right. But I can tell you some stories about this notebook. So as I flip through this notebook, there's a lot of sketches, but they are not of plants. Um, this is actually the notebook from my Dungeons and Dragons group. <laughs> so I play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. And I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons with the same group since, uh, gosh, 2018. So about five years now. Oh my gosh. I'm going to have to get you and Sophie connected because she loves Dungeons and Dragons as well. <laughs> um, and you know what? I will tell you, half of this notebook is torn out because in 2020, in the beginning of 2020, in fact, it was, I remember it very well, it was Thursday, the 12th of March. And on Thursday, 12th of March, because we always meet on Thursdays, me and my D&D crew were set to meet. And we usually meet up in a warehouse. And on that day, you know, we all got this message on our phones that says that because of this new um, disease that was going around that very little was known about, the city was going into lockdown at 12 midnight that night. And on Friday the 13th, you could not have gatherings of more than, I think it was like four or five people, right? But we all, we all remember this. Right. The fateful day. The fateful day. That So that night... I am already riding my bike towards the warehouse with this notebook in the back of my bike in my little, you know, crate where I carry all my D&D stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> and I call up my friends and I'm like, hey guys, should we, should we meet? Because, you know, this, this message just came through on our phone. And my friends were like, you know what? We might not be able to see each other for a couple weeks. So we might miss a couple sessions. Um, right? Uh, so <laughs> we so sad. Up together. And we should play one more game and then we will, you know, uh, part ways. So we meet up and we play this game together and it's an amazing night. Like we all kind of have this sense that like we really need to enjoy ourselves now. We couldn't really place it, but we had it. And at the end of the night, because they were doing some construction on this warehouse, I was like, you know what we should do? Like, this is a real weird day. Why don't we make a time capsule and we'll put like all the stuff from our game in the time capsule. And then when we get back, we'll pull it out again and we can like laugh about this, right? <laughs> and there was a, um, like a duct that, you know, they were replacing like the, the heating in this, in this warehouse. So there was mm. a duct that was open. And so we tore out half of the notebook, which was the stuff that we had done already. We put in some of our little figurines and we like wrote a letter to ourselves or we wrote a letter um, and it was a very facetious letter about like, not, you know, we were kind of like saying like, hey, this is like the crazy thing that's happening right now. And we've been together for like three years now. And this is like what's going on in our game. And we're like, isn't that strange? Well, you know, today we're parting ways and we're off to be like, you know, heroes in our own stories now. And we put everything <laughs> in that can and we stuck it inside the vent thinking that we would be back in a couple of weeks to pull it out again. And of course we weren't. And that was the last time we saw each other for a long, long time. In fact, you know, the situations of our lives changed and we didn't see each other for years. And even when we did, we didn't have all our members. And so that half of this notebook now lives in that wall because we no longer meet in that warehouse. And even if we did, that wall is now plastered over. They plastered it over in the two, three years. And it is now in there forever. We cannot take it out again. 
<laughs> oh my god that is such a wild story and it i don't know there's like elements of zathura in there um but also i want to be with you at the beginning of the next pandemic <laughs> That's so, so awesome. You know, I know, I know it was a really hard time and I don't mean to make light of it, but that is a really cool way to approach a pandemic because yeah, I mean, it was a fateful day and it was like, you know, one last game for eternity because it might be that long before we see each other. Who knows? Somebody's going to find that in the wall one of these days and just be mystified and charmed at the same time, you know. You might see it in the paper. Right. Mystery, mystery time capsule found in wall of warehouse. Yeah. Especially the the way, you know, we it's not just a time capsule of our lives at the time. It's a time capsule of our made up imaginary lives. It's a time capsule of this game that we played together <laughs> and this like little world that we built as a group. Um, so having heard that story, now what does the notebook mean to you? Now the notebook has a history. There's a story associated with this notebook and it's just so interesting. And there's this whole fractured section where those pages were pulled out. So is the beginning connecting to the later pages if you've made any entries since? And it has just a special value to it now. It's kind of like a piece of treasure. Right. It represents things that are hidden away. It represents the, the fracturing of our lives in the same way that a lot of people's lives are fractured. Like half of this thing is gone and it will never come back to us. So that's what I'm talking about when I say we try to bring in intangibles to these stories. We're trying to bring in these emotional connections to these objects that are otherwise a little dusty. You know, like when you talk about museum objects, they can seem boring and like, but they all have these beautiful histories that are relevant to you. Um, and it just takes a little bit of trying to bring that together. And so you try to do that as artfully as possible. And there is a, a little bit of an art to trying to build those emotional connections and get people to think critically and to build those associations. And so that's, that's what I try to get people to do and what my job consists of. And then also how I build my botany lectures when it comes to actually communicating science at the Arboretum. I've been on one of those botany lectures. It was the, the dinosaur summer camp, right? I think oh, that's what right. it was called. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was really interesting how you brought us first to the pond to take us back in time to when the world's animals or, you know, the plant animals, wh whatever they were called at that time, sorry, <laughs> not very sciencey of me, yeah. but the bacteria, you know, the world was bacteria and that's where it started and the primordial pools and then moving on to um, what it all looked like each era afterwards and, and ending up in modern times. And that was very interesting. And just so well put together. Yeah, I find paleo plants a really interesting subject to interpret on because it, it kind of is the furthest thing from modern human experience, right? Like we mm. are neither plants nor do we exist in the Mesozoic era. Like there is no people, right. <laughs> there was no flowers, there was no, you know, like all these things that are true of life today were not true then. Like even the air we breathe was different. So trying to build these emotional connections between the very, very distant past and today can be kind of difficult. Like there's a reason why the people who are most obsessed with dinosaurs are like five-year-olds. <laughs> it's because like when it comes to dinosaurs, like when it comes to these like ancient animals, the first thing that we see and know about them is that they're huge and they're powerful. And for an adult, that's kind of cool, but like there's a lot of things that are huge and powerful in our lives. For a little kid who's really trying to like capture autonomy in their lives, that's the only huge and powerful thing that they can really cling on to. So that's why you have to really craft your conversations when it comes talking about the past, especially when it comes to like the distant past, because you have to find things that are still relevant inside uh, those experiences that you can like tie to people's lives today. 
I think that some of the funnest things to talk about when it comes to paleo plants is like kind of how the earth became what it is today, right? Like we kind of went through that timeline of processes and like saw that through line of how the earth formed and that like we can kind of see the little evidences of it even in our everyday lives. And it's also one of the like overall reasons why I love plants. Like I love plants in general and why I, I specialize in botany and I communicate specifically about botany and do a lot of botany lectures, which you have attended, is because when it comes to plants, every little plant is like a little mystery waiting to be solved. When you look at them, they tell you a lot of things. They tell you about like, where did this thing evolve? What is this like long-term history of its development and evolution up until today. So you get this like very long-term deep story that tells you about just like the movement of the earth in general. I don't know if you remember from that talk, but we talked a little bit about cypress trees. Yes. And the genetic clocks and cypress trees and how we can look at the genes of cypress trees and knowing the rate at which genes tend to mutate, we can see when cypress trees diverge from each other, like different species diverge from each other. And because we also find cypress trees across many different continents, that can help us map when the continents moved away from each other. So just using the wood in the cypress trees, we can see the movement of continents. Like we can infer an entire tectonic history from a tree, uh, which is- That's amazing. Mind-blowing. And then not only that, but then on a short-term scale, Trees are living things that, trees and plants in general, are things that respond to their environments, right? And they don't move. They're always in that environment. They're always stuck there. At least most plants Mm -hmm. don't move. So you can see these like environmental changes that formed and shaped the life of this single organism as well. One really interesting case is the case of like plants that need mineral soil to germinate. So things like, you know, uh, there's a class of plants called fire followers, These are plants that need not only mineral soil, but also the chemicals that are left behind after burning. A fire follower that like most listeners are probably really familiar with would be lavender. Um, If you think about lavender, oily plant. Yeah, very, very oily, right? That's why it has such a thick scent. It's an oily plant that likes full sun. uh, So it has to grow in these like very bare environments. And I don't know if you've ever tried to grow lavender, like just, you know, in your yard in Southern California. But it can be a downright pest. Like it will get huge, right? Right. It loves terrible soil. It loves like just like mineral, like no hummus whatsoever, just like just bad soil, right? So lavender is one of those plants that not only does it thrive in these like mineral soil areas, but it also requires them so much so that those seeds for the lavender need to be doused in like smoke chemicals in order to successfully germinate to any sort of like success rate. And also one of the reasons why lavender seeds are really hard to germinate on your own, right? They just, you can't just like plop them in the soil and hope for the best. You might get one or two little plants. So these plants, if you see them, like just, well, lavender is highly domesticated, but um, these fire followers, these this class of plants that have this behavior, if you see them in the wild, you can tell where where there were fires before, basically. <laughs> you can tell the, the depth of the burn and the heat of the burn, and you can see like where the wind blew. You can see the wind patterns during this burn. You can infer the whole... The, the whole scene from start to end, the whole crime through the, the way that the plants grow afterwards. Wow. So yeah, they tell you a ton about the events that happen in that single place. There is a plant called fireweed, uh, which is an epilobium. It's a really pretty one. It has these long pink flowers. Is that the one that's also called poodle flower? Poodle flower. Oh, I am not sure. Uh, common names can be tricky. <laughs> okay. Epilobium. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a it's an epilobium, but uh, it's interesting because it also grows in Europe, right? So there's there's fireweeds that grow here in uh, the United States that are native here, but there's also fireweeds that are native to like Europe and Eurasia. And during World War II, they actually used to call it bombweed because fireweed needs that mineral soil and that open areas with a lot of sun. It needs that 
uh, scorched, you know, burn away all the organic matter inside the earth. And then also the smoke helps it germinate. So anywhere where bombs hit around Europe, you would see these big round craters of fireweed, bright pink fireweed. You could look out from a hilltop and see exactly where each impact area landed in, you know, a, a small city. Wow. So yeah, they are, they're little detectives. They're like storytellers, right? Mm -hmm. They're telling a story. Um, you know, I remember two fires in particular. One was the Thomas Fire up north in like the Ojai Valley area. And after that had gone through, there was white morning glory growing everywhere, just choking out every plant. It was really wild to see that. And I assumed that that was a fire follower. And then Schweitzer Falls, there was a huge fire that went through there about five years ago. And we had gone up for a hike and on the side of the road was this yellow thread. It looked like um, fishing filament or something. Mm, yeah. And I walked over and I was looking at it. And I'm like, oh, this is a plant. And there was a lot everywhere. And it took me a long time to find what it was, but it's called daughter. I'm sure you yep. know what it is. D-O-D-D-E-R. Yeah, daughter. Yeah. It's almost like an alien plant. Like it it doesn't have its own chlorophyll system. So it it finds a host. It's freaky, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's a parasite. Yes. Yeah. So in both of those instances, you actually have two different processes going on there. Um, so one is anytime there's a big disturbance, something like a fire, but not necessarily doesn't have to be a fire, you're going to get these plants that try to uh, inhabit these disturbed areas. There's certain plants that are just really well adapted to disturbed areas. And by disturbed, I mean like the soil's been moved, right? Maybe they're plants that have a lot of seeds that like to hang out in the seed bank under the ground. So, mm -hmm. you know, seeds that sit dormant for years and years. And then as the soil churns up, those seeds will germinate because they've newly been exposed to the sun. So those are some some plants that really do well under disturbance. Some plants need to be set in a place for a long time to really thrive and have an undisturbed environment. So certain species, and especially species that tend towards invasiveness, right? Uh, so invasive exotics, often the kinds of plants that will become invasive exotics are plants that are well adapted to disturbance like morning glories, will take advantage of these disturbances. Like sometimes it's fire, sometimes it's road construction. Sometimes it's just like people being around, right? Just like a lot of people running around and scuffing up the soil. Um, so those plants will take advantage of those events and just take over because they can outcompete everything else that's you know kind of shocked up from that disturbance. So morning glories are one of those, but there's also different types of morning glories. Um, that's another thing I find when I talk to people about plants is that, you know, we're, we're used to like one or two varieties of a certain species, maybe. Um, and we're often used to like the garden variety. So often we refer to morning glories, we're referring to this garden variety morning glory that's like a European plant that we've brought over and planted because it's quite pretty and it grows easily. But there are native morning glories to the United States. There's something known as bindweed. Um, again, common names are tricky because there's also a bindweed that is non-native. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, so we have plants that are native to this area that are also adapted in that way. They'll take over these whole areas that are disturbed. And we have plants that are non-native and will also <laughs> take over these areas that are disturbed. So what you're seeing there when you saw those white morning glories, and without being able to look at them closely, I wouldn't be able to tell you what kind of morning glory but those morning glories are taking advantage of this newly disturbed area. They don't necessarily have to be fire followers to do that, but they have a lot of the same adaptations that a fire follower might have. And then the second one you're pointing out is daughter. And daughter is super interesting because it is a parasite, right? Right. It's such a crazy plant. Yeah. And it's, and it's not a plant, right? Is it an it's actual a plant? plant? It's a plant. Oh. Yeah, it is okay. a vascular plant with, you know, xylem and the whole nine yards. But... It is parasitic, so it's growing off of these other plants. And what the fire has done in that area is it has impacted the immune system of these 
other plants, right? It's, it's weakened them and they can no longer fight off invaders like diseases or parasites. So when you get these areas that have been kind of toasted, but not entirely burned, you'll see a lot of these parasitic plants popping up and sort of living off of the dead and dying plants from before. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> how yeah. um, I, I was really interested in how it reproduces. Is daughter like a spore or because it, it didn't seem like it had seeds? I'm pretty sure. You know what? That is a, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, plant reproduction is funky. I'm pretty sure it doesn't have spores because, you know, like that's like something that's in the realm of like ferns and stuff like that. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure it's like a plant with seeds. But uh, often when we think about like flowering plants, we think of like flowers, right? Like big, pretty, like showy flowers. Mm -hmm. And we don't often realize that like a lot of flowers are pretty unremarkable, if not almost entirely invisible. (laughs) And so, okay, yes, it it reproduces by seed. (laughs) You're like you're looking it up. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, just so I'm sure. <laughs> I was just like, honestly, in my whole entire life, you know, I have never seen daughter, or at least I've never noticed it until that time. And ever since then, I've been kind of fascinated by it, just because yeah. it's so odd. So yeah, it's flowers are just like super tiny, um, which is true of like a lot of plants. Like, I mean, if you think about grass, grasses are flowering plants, like they have flowers. Mm. And if you are looking out over a field of grass, you are in fact looking out over a field of flowers. The flowers are just minuscule, you know, they're just like not super exciting to look at. (laughs) They're basically like nearly microscopic little tassels for the most part. I mean, some grasses have quite large flowers, but yeah, they're, they're just not terribly remarkable looking. And then there are other plants that are technically flowering plants. Like they might make a flower once every so many generations, but almost entirely rely on like cloning, like self cloning for their reproduction. If you think about, Oh, um, Aspens. I don't know if you have been in a big grove of aspens anytime in the recent past, but they're really interesting plants because aspens reproduce almost entirely through runners. So what that means is that, you know, they actually, they're underground, but the aspen roots will branch out and then they will get to a certain length and then they will pop up another tree out of that root. So when you are in an aspen grove, you're not actually in an aspen grove. You are in a single aspen. That is a single tree that you are standing in. And they can not only be huge, you know, like acres and acres of one tree, Mm -hmm. but they can also be very ancient because they don't technically die. They just keep on adding more trees and parts of the aspen will die away. But often that single organism, that single being that is the single aspen is hundreds and hundreds of years old, if not thousands. Wow. It just reminded me, I was reading a book called The Overstory. Did you read that? I don't think I've read that book. Oh my gosh. Richard Powers is the author. And the entire book is basically an ode, a love story to the tree. And he starts out with the mulberry tree. And then there is a story about an oak tree. And, And it's connecting human stories as well. But at the crux of it is all of these different trees and how they grow and how they communicate with one another and actually tell one another about a disease has come in. And oh, chestnuts. He was talking about the chestnuts and why there's so much chestnut furniture, because there was a disease that was going through and killing these chestnuts. And so the Forest Service at one point said, chop down the healthy chestnuts and turn them into furniture because they're going to contract this disease anyway. There's nothing we can do to stop it. And so that's why there's hardly any American chestnuts. But There was one whole section where he was talking in the most poetic way about an aspen forest. 
And exactly what you said that, you know, this woman was standing in this organism and it was just almost rapturous to her because she loved plants and trees so much as well as she would go out there and she was tracing where each new part of this tree had come up. And anyway, it's, it's a really interesting story. You should read it. I think you would love it. But yeah. everything that you're saying is, you know, there, there's so much of this in there. I mean, it's very botany oriented. <laughs> yeah. And I think uh, when I do my talks over the Arboretum, uh, one of the main themes that I explore is how plants are really essential to our human stories. And we don't really realize how half the time, but they are our oldest companions in life, right? Like Mm -hmm. as long as there have been humans, there have been plants and the way that we explain the earth around us and our our lives and our being is to use the objects around us as like storytelling tools, right? And so we often assign meanings to plants in order to pass these stories that just kind of tell us how to be human down through generations, because these things tend to outlast us. And so that's why, you know, whenever it comes to looking at plants, there's so many things that we can learn about us as humans and us as a society by really like looking down that line and understanding their stories, right? Their stories are our stories and and vice versa. And it's really fun. Like you can go into the deepest rabbit hole over the stupidest little plant. (laughs) Um, God, dandelions. Dandelions are just endlessly weird. (laughs) Like in the things that people associate dandelions with are endlessly weird. Like nowadays we're like, oh, dandelions, you make a wish upon it, right? Yeah. And dandelions have like for a long time been considered kind of like a medicinal plant and they are edible. They grow really easily, especially around human activity. They're really well adapted to that disturbance. Dandelions are pretty like deeply ingrained in our lives. But like, if you look back through say like European history and how folks in Europe, you know, 100, 200, 300 years ago viewed dandelions, People associated them with bedwetting. What? <laughs> yeah, can you not bedwetting? They actually kiss a bed. Um, <laughs> so when it comes to plants and why, <laughs> when it comes like the big, the big question, of, like why did we think this? Why? Why would we ever think this? Because this is true of like a lot of plants where you like tell people like, oh yeah, like you know, in Roman times, people used to think that this plant, like, I don't know was poisonous or they thought that this plant made you horny or they thought that this plant would bring like, you know, uh, your true love to your side, you know, and it's like, why? Like, uh, what is that one? Uh, love lies bleeding, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Is that amaranth? Uh, amaranth or again, common names are weird because <laughs> there's several things that are called love lives, bleed. love lies bleeding. So yes, uh, but one of them is an amaranth. (laughs) And it's true, especially the the wider you cast your net as far as like what people call things over bigger and bigger and bigger radiuses, you're going to gather more and more and more plants into that basket. (laughs) That's so funny. I had read with the uh, dandelion that it's a European transplant because Mm -hmm. Europeans brought it over because it was kind of comforting to have something that they had grown up with because it didn't grow here. But the funny thing is, you know, I've got this tortoise, Vladimir, and I have two vegetable boxes outside. And one of them, I thought, I'm going to turn this into Vladimir's box. And I planted common yellow dandelions. I threw some seeds in there for some pink dandelions which I have not seen come up yet, and some white Japanese dandelions. And I didn't know that dandelions came in all of these different colors and varieties, which, as you mentioned, there's a crazy variety of a lot of different plants. We're just not aware of them because we're used to seeing the common plants. And I'm telling you, this box right now, because of all of the rain, it's going crazy. I have three foot high dandelions of every kind you can imagine (laughs) and I'm not sure if these are the pink ones or if these are the white ones but 
They are prehistoric looking, enormous leaved plants. And I'm yet to see a flower on them. And I'm so scared to give those leaves to Vladimir because... You want to see what you're going to get. I want to see what it is, but I'm thinking, okay, is this truly a dandelion or are they calling this a dandelion and it's something that it's not okay for him to eat right right yeah that is a thing when especially when you buy like weird varietals of seeds like on the internet or something you don't really know what you're getting until you like germinate it right (laughs) right you have to kind of wait till like you know does its thing but yeah, uh, you mentioned like lots of different colors. Well, the thing with dandelions are they're yellow, right? And I was saying there right. is like a reason why we kind of think that all of these, like we have these like mythological associations with all these different plants. Um, and that's because up until fairly recently, like I'd say up until like the last couple hundred years when like medicine really started to work its way along and you started to get like the idea of germ theory and stuff like that. Most, at least Western medicine was based off of the doctrine of signatures. And the idea behind the doctrine of signatures was that like cures like basically. And doctrine of signatures is weird too, because we don't think of medicine as like a religious thing, but up until fairly recently it was like medicine was basically witchcraft, magic, and a little bit of know-how. That's true. (laughs) So the idea behind Doctrine of Signatures was that for every disease and malady on earth, God has put some sort of cure for it down. And that that cure is signified, has a signature. It's signified by its resemblance to the thing that it must cure. And because dandelions are yellow, they must make you pee. That is the idea. Oh, that is hilarious. Like, it is literally that. And this is true of like all kinds of things. Um, you know, there's the walnut. I don't know if you've ever seen like a fresh walnut falling right the off. Wa- the, tree. the walnut and the brain, right? Well, well, the walnut seed, the nut itself and the brain. But I don't know if you've ever seen a walnut and its husk. Yes, they're they're just green balls. They're green balls and they're they're, they're a little bit wrinkly too, right? Like the yeah, outside is a little yeah. bit leathery looking. Um, yeah. So the the Latin name for walnut is juglans, J-U-G-L-A-N-S. And it was thought that if you were to plant a walnut tree near your town or have walnuts nearby, um, it was very dangerous because these walnut trees could incite hysterical horniness. Like straight up, like you would not be able to control yourself. It just makes you like so uh, lustful uh, being around these walnuts. And walnuts are considered like a... <laughs> this, an aphrodisiac. Know, like, aphrodisiac of mythological powers. And people actually would like cut down walnut trees because like, oh, it's it's causing, you know, our women and our village to be just like unmanageable. Um, <laughs> and it's because... <laughs> Juglins literally translates to the balls of Jove, the testicles of Jove, the glands of Jupiter. Um, So these, because they look like giant wrinkly testicles, they had to cause horniness. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the avocado, right? Uh, Aguacate Mm -hmm. comes from... I don't know which Indian tribe in Mexico, but Mayans maybe, or the Aztecs, but it comes from one of their languages and it means testicles because when they would see them hanging in the tree, they were heavy and often in pairs. And so they got the name aguacate, which somehow means testicles. (laughs) There's so many plants that are named after like human genitals. It is ridiculous. Um, (laughs) I think this is something that people don't really realize about botanists, but they are a dirty bunch. Um, (laughs) I can see that. Day in and day out is sex. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm like, it is really funny too, because like we, especially like in, you know, uh, Western science, which is what I, I often talk to because I interpret in the English language. So I'm often like talking to a crowd that, you know, European descent. So often I'm talking about Western science. This isn't true of like world science, but in Western science, our ideas around morality and sex have really shaped how we do science when it comes to things like as basic as pollination. Like for a long ass time, people did not believe that pollination was a thing. Or I wouldn't even say that like they didn't believe that it was a thing. Like obviously like you can move pollen from one plant to another and things happen. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't. It's what really, I like, do with my squashes in the summertime. If I'm not getting enough squash, I'm out there going, okay, where's the male? Let's get some of that pollen off and rub it into the female flower. Right. So, like, we know, and like, it's pretty obvious just through like visual, you know, you can just, you can confirm this visually. I take yes. the pollen from one plant and I put it on another plant and it makes a third plant. Or I take the pollen from one flower, put it in another flower, so forth and so on, right? Um, but folks were, the, I guess, like the existence of pollination wasn't the debate. It was what is pollen exactly? What is it doing? And we could not accept as a society that pollen was sperm. Like we could not, we, it just, it was inconceivable to us. Um, and it was inconceivable because it was like, th- there was this idea once upon a time that all of nature is perfect. It's perfect. It was made perfect and it always will be perfect. And therefore anything that happens in nature has to be perfect and it has to be moral, mm. right? Like, so like, our idea of like perfection was also tied up in our de- idea of what is moral. And so, you know, what we thought of as perfect um, had to go along with like these changing ideas of morality. And that means that there was no way that God would make a perfect plant that's going to come all over us once a year. <laughs> like that was not okay in our mind. Right. So there's no way that like pollen could be sperm. And then when people started realizing or we started the the evidence stacked up to the point where like we could as a scientific community could no longer deny it, which this has started happening like around the 1700s, uh, like kind of mid 1700s with Cuvier who was a French scientist and like kind of kept going all the way through Darwin. And as Darwin comes up with these theories of evolution and how species change and reproduce over time, at this point, like, we we have to admit to ourselves that pollen is sperm. There's no other way that this works. Right. (laughs) So, you know, it took us like a good hundred years as a society to like swallow that pill. (laughs) (laughs) That allergies that we have to it too, though, right? I mean, it's just like the thought that I'm having this allergic attack over plant sperm. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. So we, uh, it took us a long time to really like get that through our heads that like, yes, this is in fact what's going on. So, you know, we kind of shoot ourselves in the foot sometimes as scientists and as people who are trying to study the inner workings of the world by trying to apply our morality to like what we're seeing going on around us. And that is one of the pitfalls when it comes to interpretation, because you want to, and this is your goal, is to make something relevant to the person you are communicating it to, right? And to do that, you're going to have to play. And I say play, that's probably not like the best descriptor for it, but you kind of have to play on their emotions. You have to figure out what's important to this person and how do I make this thing that I'm talking about? How do I make this dinosaur or this flower or this fossil or this, you know, pot relevant to you? Uh, You know, random person walking through the Naturalist Museum at 2.30 on a Tuesday afternoon in Los Angeles, California, right? Um, how do I make this important to you? And so that means that I have to kind of think through like, what are these like universal concepts that they have deep emotional connections to? And how can I take this thing and tell you, this is why this is important to that deep universal concept. But that also means that like, I am going to be playing on their ideas of morality and playing on their ideas of humanity and what it means to feel certain emotions like happiness or love or family. And so you walk a very fine line as a... Uh, interpreter as a 
you know, educator trying to build those connections, but not so deeply that we can't still think critically about the things that we are looking at. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that is part of like the art and like, you know, what you're striving towards as a science communicator and as a museum educator. Wow. It's a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I know that you did have your botany lessons is usually body botany, isn't it? Is that what you're going to do again? Body botany is my very popular Valentine's Day botany talk is called body botany. So I do um, a different like botany themed lecture every month at the LA Arboretum. And my Valentine's Day or my February botany talk is known as body botany. And I think it's my favorite. It's actually what spurred on the formation of the Arboretum night hikes and especially the Arboretum adult only night hikes because (laughs) there are tons (laughs) of really interesting things to talk about with plants. Uh, Like I said, plants tell us all about our existence as human. And there's really nothing more human than sex and reproduction. Like that is what gets us here and that's what keeps us here sort of thing. So it's amazing to talk about and it's really fun. I find like a lot of people see plants in a brand new way when you talk about like what they mean to us on the level of our most basic function and need. So it is super cool. It's very popular. And it's all about plants' connections to love, romance, sex, and reproduction. Uh, and But that's not all of them. I have other talks, too, where I talk about, like, dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> They're not all dirty. Yes. I like um, the dinosaur. The dinosaur one was interesting. Yeah. I do uh, one called Plants uh, That Change the World, which I, when I, going into this, I uh, thought would be a really fun like I was like oh this is going to be kind of adventure filled it's going to be about like pirates and political assassinations and like it's all the ways that plants like changed huge world events and it actually turned out to be like super depressing like the whole Mm -hmm. thing when I finished it's like a two and a half hour talk and like usually when people walk away from my talks, they'll like be doing like, ooh, cool, you know, ooh, I had a lot of fun. I actually had a good time. You know, you hear a lot of that kind of thing, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, I never thought about it that way. And when people walked away from the plants that changed history talk, it was like with a little tear in their eye and like a deep resentment towards their fellow man. <laughs> So were you talking about like, say, um, castor bean plants, which, you know, are all over the place. And that's what ricin is made from, which is one of the strongest poisons in the world. Or, yeah. And, you know, like poison mushrooms and all of that sort of thing. So that's kind of what I thought I'd be talking about. And like when it comes to castor beans, castor beans are super cool. Like the oil that comes off of them is Mm -hmm. just the right consistency that it doesn't like gloop up at really cold temperatures. So castor oil was what allowed us to take flight basically during World War I, World War II. A lot of castor plants were planted around this area, Southern California, because we were harvesting that oil for the airplane industry. We were uh, using it to grease airplane engines. And in fact, like if you read about these early aviators during World War II, they'll describe being covered in black castor oil from like the engine, like just tossing off this like gloopy oil midair. Um, and, you know, everything was open cockpit back then. So you'd just be like just blackened <laughs> with grease by the time you got down to the ground again. People have such romantic thoughts of those open cockpit planes right and then you have this conversation it's like no you you go up looking pretty and you come back like you went through something (laughs) oh yeah and you were like freezing every every inch of you that was exposed Uh was not only chapped and a little bit like frostbitten but i mean just think of the worst chapped lives you've ever had and then like cover (laughs) that in like castor oil and like bugs and Uh. Yeah. And just like, like, (laughs) dust. Um, you're like, if you had a mustache, it would have been like full of ice crystals. It was not fun. I mean, people, if you read like 
accounts and if you read uh, all the poetry that came from aviators at that time, being able to partake in this activity of flight that no one's ever done before, like they literally compare it to touching the face of God, like feeling like a deity, like, you know, it is like an absolutely incredible otherworldly experience, but it's also just mm -hmm. absolutely gross. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, the, it's the price you pay for being in God's realm. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, um, it's a little bit of both and that's very cool. And I talk a lot about transatlantic ship travel and like how limes contributed to that and allowed it to happen. Right. But along with that, what transatlantic ship travel really did to change the world was it enabled the transatlantic slave trade. And when we talk about plants that change the world, Often we're talking about these agricultural plants and agricultural plants are really tied up in like these very sad events that include like slavery, that include the devastation of whole nations. And they include these like very inhumane acts of people towards other people for the sake of profit. Great. So yeah, it turned out to be like super sad. Oh man. Yeah. One of the plants that I talk about during that program, I talk about cassava plants, which are today the most widely ingested plant in the world, right? It's like everybody's probably had a cassava product in their lifetime. Um, right. You probably eat like tapioca yogurt or, you know, like had a gummy bear or something like that, right? Right. And I think that yuca, right? In Spanish, the, mm -hmm. the root yep. vegetable that's eaten kind of like a potato. Yes. Yeah. So when Columbus first landed in the New World and he encountered the indigenous people there, one of their main staples was the cassava plant. That was for a lot of indigenous people throughout the Caribbean. That was like you're, it was like bread flour, right? Mm -hmm. And after about a year and a half, Columbus had done so much damage to these indigenous people that he had encountered. Just, I mean, mind-blowingly bad, 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 bad things, right? Like just this whole voyage was just a run of rape and murder and destruction. Yeah. And after a couple years of contact, this entire island was either dead or enslaved or in the throes of a resistance movement. And when it got to the point where folks were pretty sure that they weren't going to expel Columbus and that this was now life, they did not want their children to have to live through colonization. Uh, they didn't want their children to have to go through the suffering that that would bring to them. And so they did a act of mass suicide in an attempt to save themselves from that fate. And what they did was that they ate raw cassava. And some anthropologists believe that cassava was specifically chosen because the kids knew what cassava was. They ate it all the time and they wouldn't question taking that from their parents. Their parents were kind of trying to not, not let on what was going to happen. You know, so... It's like, like you get to those like really human moments where you like look back and you're like, oh man, this could be, you know, you look at like your kids and your nieces and you're like, I can't imagine being in this position where I have to choose between these two horrible fates and trying to put yourself in the mindset of like what these people were trying to deal with and like how they're trying to soften the situation and that plant that was there for them is here for us today. And I can hold it in my hand just like somebody 400 years ago can hold it in their hand. So it's like these connections with folks long gone throughout history. Yeah. And what does raw cassava do? Uh, so raw cassava is pretty poisonous. Um, there's a lot of plants that are pretty high in like cyanides, cassava being one of them. So it will prevent your blood from taking up oxygen, basically. Mm. So it's pretty quick if you have enough of it. Oh, it's so sad. Yeah, and it's weird because we think of it like it's an agricultural plant. We eat a lot of it, but it is like highly poisonous if not processed properly. And that's true of like a lot of things. We, when we talk about like things that are poison and things that are deadly, a lot of things are deadly. <laughs> a lot yeah. of plants are deadly. Um, and a lot of plants that we just like live around and keep with us all the time, like castor beans are actually like a very 
common ornamental in Los Angeles. You see them in people's yards all the time, but just like a handful of castor seeds will kill an adult person very quickly. So yeah, like there's, you know, a lot about these plants that's very powerful. They mean a lot of very powerful things to a lot of people throughout history. And we just walk by them every day like there's no big deal. Like it's just like it's a pretty plant in your park. I'm always so thrilled to listen to Jenna talk about plants. It just gets me super excited. I love plants, but Jenna really loves them. And it's just like this wow factor in how there's this whole world unto plants that we really don't even know about until we stop to study them. They have been here long before we have, and they'll likely be here long after. There's this really powerful quote in the overstory by Richard Powers, and it's, quote, you and the tree in your backyard come from a common ancestor. A billion and a half years ago, the two of you parted ways. But even now, after an immense journey in separate directions, that tree and you still share a quarter of your genes, end quote. Jenna just has such a fascinating way of sharing their importance. And so I do hope that you'll be back next week for part two of this captivating talk. As always, please check the show notes. Also, take a moment to rate this episode because your ratings really do help move this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I'm looking forward to sharing more upcoming In the Company of Friends talks with you. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com, all at The Queen Trail Podcast. That's T H E Q U A I N T R E L E Podcast. I am Syl Annan, The Queen Trail. And until next time, I wish you passion, grace, elegance, more opportunities to get out in nature more opportunities to learn about plants and also beauty.